This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Hayesville, North Carolina. Welcome to a Wednesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. It's the first day of March, 2023. It's going to be a rainy few days here down in North Carolina, but I'll take it. Those of you up in the Northeast, I hope you got through the snowstorm okay. I understand there's an ice storm headed that way for the weekend, so... Just anytime I need a little reminder about why we got the hell out of there, <laughs> I just got to watch the weather forecast. Uh, we do have a, a chance of some uh, severe weather here tomorrow, but uh, uh, I don't have to shovel rain. That's all I'm saying. Uh, a little bit of the hodgepodge this morning, a little bit of this, a little bit of that to get to. Um, I want to start, before we get to sports, interesting story uh, that came out yesterday uh, parts of a deposition were unsealed uh, with Roger Murdoch, who is the uh, chairman of Fox, which, of course, owns Fox News, which, is, of course, is the, um, the mouthpiece, essentially, of the Republican Party uh, and especially of Donald Trump. And in this deposition, uh, Rupert Murdoch admitted that his on-air hosts, or some of them, endorsed the false election claims by Donald Trump. Uh, this deposition was done as part of a lawsuit. Dominion um, Voting Systems, who is the producer of all the uh, voting machines around the country, is suing Fox because Dominion... Uh, is claiming that they were harmed because they were slandered uh, over the course of uh, this whole thing and saying that, they, you know, their their machines were faulty, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I think they, you know, do they have a case? Probably, yeah. Um, and when you have the head of Fox saying that people like uh, uh, Maria Bartiromo, Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs uh, were endorsing the false claims that the election was rigged. Um, it's not a good look for Fox. Um, you know, look, um, and as Dominion said, and, and as the investigations have proven, there was no evidence to support anything that Donald Trump was claiming about the election being stolen. We've seen that down here in Georgia, not far from where I live, uh, with the investigation there of of how he tried to strong-arm the Secretary of State in the state of Georgia to find him some votes, you know, and uh, it's crazy. And look, Murdoch, even in September, before the election even happened in 2020, Rupert Rupert Murdoch actually talked to the uh, people running Fox News and said 
that they needed to fire Lou Dobbs because he was, quote-unquote, an extremist. Uh, and he, and he, Murdoch also said that he thought it was really bad for Rudy Giuliani to be invi- advising Trump because he said Giuliani's, uh, quote, judgment was bad, and he was, quote, an extreme partisan. <laughs> and he was asked in the deposition, you know, could he have stopped certain people from being uh, put on the air? And he said, yeah, I could have, but I didn't. So, you know, and the attorneys for Dominion are saying, hey, look, you know, the people in the chain of command at Fox knew what was going on, knew there were lies, had the power to stop it, but chose to let it continue. Hey, I mean, I how can, you know, look, you can't argue that. You know, and... We, we have found out more over the course of the last few months about text messages and emails that had gone back and forth between some of the people uh, at Fox about, you know, they were saying one thing on the air and believing another thing behind the scenes, including that idiot Tucker Carlson. And yet it continues and continues and continues. It's just crazy. Uh, you know, so... And if you're Rupert Murdoch, it just shows that you have no, you have no credibility. You have no, you know, you can say, "I well, I, I should have done this. I could have done that. Yes, they did this. Yes, they did that. But I did nothing to stop it. Well, you have no credibility to be running a news organization. You know, I mean, they're not going to do anything to him, but. Well, they will if they find Fox is liable. It's going to cost Rupert Murdoch's company a lot of money. And, you know, of course, you know, uh, Fox is, you know, hemming and hawing and saying, well, yeah, Rupert said this, but, you know, show me some uh, evidentiary support for the claim that high-level executives at Fox had any role in creating or publishing the statements at issue. Hey, look, the the higher-ups, the people that are running Fox News – don't have to be behind they don't have to be the ones creating the strategy to get on board with Donald Trump's wild claims they don't have to do that they don't have to create it but they damn sure can police it and if they know it's not true they have the the ability to say no knock it off you're going to get us sued which is exactly what's happened so, and look, this isn't about, uh, you know, right, left, anything. This is about facts. The election wasn't rigged. No matter what people still want to say, there are still people here that believe that. The evidence doesn't back it up. And when you are, uh, you know, when you are the head of Fox Corp and you are deposed and you know it's false and you know people were saying the wrong thing, that's pretty cut and dry as far as I'm concerned. So it's not a good look for Fox, and I think I'll be shocked if Dominion doesn't win this lawsuit. Uh, All right. um, It's kind of in the sports realm, but more in the courts as well. The family of uh, Kobe Bryant, who, of course, was killed in that helicopter crash along with his daughter uh, back in 2020, uh, they settled out of court yesterday with with Los Angeles County. Uh, to settle the remaining lawsuit they had over the 
pictures that were taken at the crash scene by firefighters and sheriffs and, and then, you know, spread around, mostly, you know, mostly amongst themselves, but some of them got out. And, you know, Vanessa Bryan, of course, his widow, was outraged, as she should be. And so now the county of Los Angeles has to pay her $28.5 million. She had gotten $13.5 million originally, um, and then the... uh, uh, from a federal jury, and now this one is uh, basically over the photo, so she got an additional $15 million. Um, it, just crazy. And it, it solves any future claims by uh, by Kobe Bryant's three surviving daughters. So basically, this is the end of it. And uh, uh, Chris Chester, who was the co-plaintiff at the trial with Vanessa Bryant, uh, was also awarded $15 million. And then uh, reached his own settlement with the county in September for another $5 million over everything that happened. Uh, and and th- this isn't about the county being liable for the crash. This is just about, you know, idiocy. Where you're going to go to a crash that horrific with somebody like that and you're going to take pictures and spread them. I mean, come on. You know, I mean, uh, I'll tell you what, you know, I can't even imagine how I would react if that was, you know, my loved one who had been involved in that crash and I found out that people were taking photos basically, you know, uh, it's like it's it's worse than when you go by on a highway and you see a crash and everybody's rubbernecking to see if there's any any body parts on the road. They actually were taking pictures of the parts and it's just oh god. You know, and I don't know whether any of these people that did this got fired, but boy, I hope the hell they did. All right, let's get to some actual sports from last night. Uh, I stayed up late, uh, midnight, to watch the Boston Bruins game. It, my my wife went to bed, I don't know, she probably went to bed around 9.30, quarter of 10. I said, well, you know, the game just started at 9. They were out in Calgary. I said, I've got to watch this. It's kind of a slow sports night. i got to make sure i got stuff to talk about tomorrow, so I'm going to stay up and watch the game. But... You know, if the Bruins get up big, um, I'll be in bed early because, you know, I didn't really want to be up till midnight. Uh, and the Bruins took a 2 nothing lead. And then next thing I know in the third period, down 3-2, I got to stay up. It goes to overtime. The Bruins win it 4-3 uh, to three with a goal by Charlie McAvoy with 4.3 seconds left in overtime. And when I tell you that the Boston Bruins were lucky to win this game, that's an understatement. If it weren't for the play of Linus Ulmark, their goaltender last night, the Bruins probably lose this game. You know, if it, if an average human was in the goal, they probably lose this game seven one. They got outshot last night, fifty seven to eighteen. They got outshot by a three to one margin, and yet still won this game. Uh, Ulmark made fifty four saves, which is a franchise record, by the way, for a regular season game. And it is a career high for him, obviously. Uh, I mean, they had they had a 2-0 lead and yet got outshot in the first period like 18-5. to 
And look, good for Calgary. They made a you know they made a smart move. They changed goaltenders between periods. Calgary is in a position where they need points. You know the playoffs are coming, and they knew they needed to get points. It wasn't that Calgary played badly because they outshot the Bruins big time. If it weren't for Olmark, this game is not a game. But Calgary right now sits five points out of the last playoff spot in the Western Conference. They have 67 points trailing Edmonton and Winnipeg. Look, they still have 20 games to play. They still have plenty of time. But that was a a case last night where if you're the Calgary coaching staff, you're looking at this game going, Jesus, we're out playing them and we're losing 2 nothing because our goalie can't stop anything. So it was a wise move. Um, And I'll tell you what, talk about a great acquisition. When the Bruins made that trade to get Dmitry Orlov, from the Washington Capitals. He had two the first two goals last night, and then he assisted on the one that tied it up with five or six minutes to go in the game. So he had a three-point night. He has scored four goals since coming to Boston. And uh, what a great move that, that was. It's really uh, the Bruins' defense has been so much better since he got there, and they have been so much more of a factor on offense. Pavel Zaka, another defenseman, was the one who scored the tying goal in the third period after Calgary. As I said, they trailed 2 nothing. They got one back in the second, and then at the 8-16 mark of the third period, uh, Dylan Duby tied it up, and then Jonathan Huberto, a minute and 20 seconds later, Put him ahead 3-2 and you were like, oh, you know, here goes the floodgates. It's because all of a sudden, you know, they're still killing the Bruins. Skating all around them. And somehow Boston managed to get that goal by Zaka. How about in the second period, Calgary outshot Boston in this game 20-4. 20-4. And Boston was still winning going into the third. But great game. Uh, a lot of fun. The Bruins now with 99 points with 22 games to play for Boston 47 8 and 5 they have only lost eight games in regulation all year it is unbelievable they finished that west coast swing 4 and 0 they weren't dominant in really any of the games on that trip for a full 60 minutes you know they played what four games in six days they're coming back to play Buffalo on Thursday and then they've got another game on Saturday, and then they got three or four days in a row off before they have to play two more games in three days. I mean, they've got a grueling schedule, and they looked like a tired team last night. They looked like a team that was on the fourth game of a four-game West Coast swing, and uh, they struggled, but they somehow find a way to win. But when you have the best record in the NHL and you have found a way all season, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, the big news in the NHL yesterday was a trade. Patrick Kane was traded from the Chicago Blackhawks, perhaps the most popular player on that team, a guy who helped that franchise win a couple of Stanley Cups. Actually, I think three of them. Uh, got traded from the Blackhawks to the New York Rangers. And uh, he will join a former teammate, uh, uh, Artemi Panarin, we played with for a couple of years in Chicago. And he joins Vladimir Tarasenko, who they got from St. Louis. 
uh, back in the first week of February. Look, that the all of a sudden the Rangers are putting themselves in a position to challenge um, the Bruins and the Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, look, right now the Rangers are in sixth place in the Eastern Conference. But they have just added a lot of firepower. And, look, Kane's numbers have been down this year. He's got six goals, 29 assists in 54 games. But his numbers are down because the Blackhawks stink. Chicago is like is next to last in the NHL in points. They're 21-34-5 this year. He has nobody around him. So, you know, it's basically a case of, hey, we're going to let anybody uh, but Kane beat us. As I said, this guy is a franchise player. He was the number one pick in the 2007 draft. He's in the last season of an $84 million eight-year contract uh, extension that was finalized in 2014. So he will be a free agent at the end of this season. But what a great piece for the New York Rangers to get as uh, they try to get themselves into better playoff position. Another trade yesterday, Jonathan Quick, uh, Connecticut native, by the way, uh, was traded from the Los Angeles Kings to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, and the Blue Jackets are sending back uh, goaltender Unis uh, Corposalo. Uh, look, this is for for Los Angeles. This is about trying to solidify their playoff position. They right now um, have the most points in the Western Conference. They're the number two seeds behind Vegas uh, based on tiebreaker. But their goaltending hasn't been very good. Quick has struggled this year. Look, Quick is 37 years old. He's in the last year of a 10-year contract. He's played his entire career with Los Angeles. This is a guy that helped the Kings win two Stanley Cups. He's a Vezina Trophy winner, but those days are long behind him. He's 11-13-4 this year, and his save percentage is only 876. And goaltending's been a problem for the Kings, and uh, to get Corpusello back is going to help them, and uh, you know, Quick's pissed. He, there is no the, the uh, word out of Columbus was to say that he was upset about the trade is an understatement. But as we have learned, it doesn't make you know. We talk about baseball being a business all the time. Every sport's a business, and if you are the Los Angeles Kings, this is a good move by them for Quick. Uh, you wonder if it will drive him uh, into retirement. He's going to be, as I said, he's 37 years old, hasn't played very well, not happy about the move, um, and uh, he's going to a Columbus team that has the worst record in hockey. So, <laughs> you know, if you're Jonathan Quick, you've made a lot of money uh, over the course of your career, and you wonder if this uh, this might be it for him. So uh, we shall see. It is 24 minutes past the hour. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we got a bunch of baseball things to talk about, a lot of injuries uh, cropping up, and uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers take a big hit. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 27 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call here on a Wednesday morning. So, uh, uh, spent last evening or part of the evening prior to the Bruins game watching the Red Sox play uh, the Miami Marlins. Uh, and we had another situation where a guy got called out on strikes because he wasn't in the box ready to hit. And, uh, you know, I started thinking about it last night going, you know, sometimes you wonder and, and you know, the numbers are going to come down. This is, it, it happened in the minor leagues when they first started it where the first week you had like 
almost two instances like this uh, in every game, and then it went down and, and steadily to the point where it got to be less than one a game. But there are a few things that have happened that you start to wonder if maybe there's a couple of tweaks that need to be made. And it was funny. I pick up my computer this morning. I'm reading the Boston Globe online. And uh, Chris Gasper had an article in the Globe this morning. And some of his thoughts are right along the lines of mine. And look, I think the pitch clock is a good thing. Chris Gasper agrees that it's a good thing. But there are some things that have happened where you go, I, you know, it just doesn't seem right. I, here's a perfect example, and you've probably seen this by now. In a game last week when the Red Sox played the Atlanta Braves, the game ended when the Braves batter was called out because he wasn't ready to hit within that eight seconds. And he was given a called strike three, and the game ended in a tie, because spring training games ended ties, instead of him having an opportunity to win this game. And when you look back on the whole thing, if you watch, and I did, if you watch the entire sequence, you'll realize that how kind of silly this was. So the batter is stepped in, and he, he was in the box, but he had his head down. He was looking down at the ground. He wasn't ready to hit. He wasn't looking at the pitcher. He wasn't locked in. But at the same time, the Red Sox catcher, uh, Eli Marrero, was standing up behind home plate, signaling to his infielders. Right? Signaling to his infielders. If the Red Sox pitcher had thrown the ball then, Marrero, and he could have because it was within those those eight seconds, if he had thrown the ball, Marrero wasn't going to catch it because he was signaling to the infields. It probably, you know, hits the, you know, hits the umpire or something. I don't know. But instead, they call strike three because the batter wasn't looking at the pitcher. And to me, that's, you know, common sense says, well, that's stupid. And it is. Uh, uh, Chris Gasper called it bureaucratic baseball. <laughs> but, you know, and he has a good solution to this. And I agree. I, and I don't know that Major League Baseball will do it. And I, and right now, it's spring training. So at the end of the day, does anybody really care that a spring training game ends in a tie or that a spring training game ends with somebody losing because of a strike three call? I mean, obviously you want to win. That's just – that's. You know, but it's spring training. Nobody cares. If this happens in the regular season and somebody loses a game, let's say the game is tied or you're down by a run and the bases are loaded in two outs and you've got your best hitter up and he decides to take his sweet time getting in a box on a 3-2 count and you call strike three and the game's over, people are going to lose their minds. And rightly so. So Chris Gasper's... Uh, solution is this. You don't get an automatic strike the first time you're the batter and you're not ready to hit. It should be a warning. Right? You do it again, then then it's a strike. Give them one warning and just say, hey, remember, you know, remember. This is what you got to do. Um, 
it's an easy fix. And he said it won't slow down the game, and he's right. Um, so we'll see. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, and, and as Alex Spear had pointed out, it was 1.73 per game in week two when they started it in the minors. Uh, and then it went down to 0.73 by week five. And by the end of the season, it was down to 0.41 violations per game. So it isn't that big a factor. And look, it is speeding up games. Yesterday's Red Sox game took two hours and 22 minutes. That, my friends, is a beautiful thing. You know, the average spring training game right now is two hours and 38 minutes. And if they can get a regular season game over in two hours and 38 minutes, I'm telling you, you are going to make this game more interesting, more accessible, and more fun for kids to watch because there is always going to be something going on, right? I mean, right now, uh, look at how long we have to wait, you know, between pitches because it's either the pitcher or it's the batter that are taking their sweet time getting ready. to getting ready. So I don't think anybody is arguing the idea that the pitch clock is good. It's a matter of what do we do to tweak this so that we don't have more situations like that game with the Red Sox and the Braves. And again, I know it's spring training. I know it doesn't matter. But it's silly. And and there's concerns about, you know, what you do if that's a regular season game. You know, and the umpires have been told by the league to call this tight. They want it to be a mess. Right? They want it in spring training for all the possible things to go wrong. They want it to go wrong so that the players understand this is what it is. And so now, you know, be ready. And spring training, if you're going to have a mess, spring training is the time to have it. So I don't blame the umpires here either. You know, and by the way, after Major League Baseball reviewed the whole thing with the Red Sox-Brave game, they backed up the umpire. Well, of course, they'd back up the umpire pretty much universally. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that that tweak that Chris Gasper suggests I think is a good one. I'd like to see it. Um, I mentioned injuries, and there was a huge one. And we mentioned this yesterday that Gavin Lux um, had been carted off the field and uh, he was going to have an MRI yesterday. And unfortunately, uh, the MRI revealed that he tore his right ACL. And his season is over. Uh, you know, and look, I mean, uh, he gets hurt. And he, and he got hurt running the bases. You know, uh, he stumbled when he was trying to avoid a throw from the third baseman. And his knee just kind of gave out on him. Uh, he said his, his cleat got caught in the dirt when he ducked. Uh, I know when he straightened his leg, it gave out. And, uh, you know, so the, he, they are without Gavin Lux now. Here's the problem. Their shortstop from last year is no longer there. He's with the Philadelphia Phillies. The Dodgers are really, really thin at shortstop. 
they were planning on him. I mean, he's normally their second baseman. He was their second baseman. Now they've got Miguel Rojas is going to be uh, their shortstop. And, you know, now you wonder, I mean, and the shortstop market is not a robust one. You know, finding a good look, look at what the Red Sox had to go through when Xander Bogarts walked. You know, you got to take a guy in, and then Trevor Story gets hurt, you know, and you got to take a guy in Kike Hernandez who's never played more than 60 games at shortstop in his career. It's never been his primary position, even though he says it is his best position. So where you go with that? So now you have Miguel Rojas, a 34-year-old guy who has played his entire career up until now with the Miami Marlins. Uh, look, he's a uh, you know he's a decent hitter, I guess. I mean, he has no pop. He's a 260 career hitter. He's got 39 career home runs in nine seasons. So you're not getting much out of that. Um, don't know what's going to happen with them. I think they're probably going to go out and look because outside of Miguel Rojas, what they have is Chris Taylor. You know, again, Chris Taylor is really not a shortstop. You know, Taylor's a guy that has played for the Dodgers the last six years. And uh, offensively, uh, maybe a step up. I mean, he's got he's definitely got more pop than uh, Miguel Rojas does. He hit 20 home runs back in 2021. You know, he's hit 20 home runs a couple of times and, you know, usually will at least be in double digits. But this is going to be a problem for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So not real sure where they're going to go from there. Um, Tampa Bay uh, starter Tyler Glass now, who was coming back, had thrown uh, about six pitches uh, during a batting practice session, had to shut it down. He had an MRI yesterday. That revealed a grade two strain. You know, he only made two starts all of last year because he was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. And now he's got a strain in his left oblique. He is going to be out for six to eight weeks. He will not be available for opening day. And if you have ever had an oblique injury, and I'm never, listen, I've never been a pitcher, okay? Let's start with that. But I had an oblique injury, I mean, and I, I get that I'm old, but I had an oblique injury that bothered me for the better part of a year, year and a half. You know, where you, you just, if you move the wrong way, you get that pull on your side. I can't imagine what it must be like to have to be a pitcher and have an oblique injury. Um, so they're saying six to eight weeks. We'll see. Um, another injury, the San Diego Padres. Uh, Joe Musgrove, one of their members of their starting rotation, suffered a fracture in his left big toe while working out in the weight room. So I don't know whether he dropped the weight on himself or what he did, but he is going to be out uh, for a few weeks. Probably puts him in jeopardy of opening day. We're just going to have to see whether how well that heals. Uh, but a weight room injury, you got to love it. Uh, the Cubs announced, uh, as Seiya Suzuki, as we mentioned yesterday, he is not going to be going to the World Baseball Classic 
Um, but uh, they're saying that he has a moderate strain in his left oblique. Look, muscle injuries, very common in spring training, right? You've been sitting around and you start to ramp it up and it doesn't go as well as you would expect it and you end up pulling something. So they're not too concerned about that. Um, the Rockies, Brendan Rodgers, left shoulder injury, diving for a ground ball. Uh, he said he felt the, sh- uh, the shoulder joint pop out. He is having an MRI today. Uh, no word yet on how bad that is. Um, Luis Gonzalez for the San Francisco Giants uh, will probably be ready for the first month of the season, but he is definitely not going to be able to play on opening day. His back problems have flared up once again, uh, and so he, uh, he has been shut down for a while. Mike Yastrzemski, their right fielder, uh, has some right knee soreness. They're not too concerned about that, but they're going to shut him down for a few days. Uh, Bryce Harper for the Philadelphia Phillies. They say he is taking dry swings at home in Vegas. Uh, basically means he's swinging a bat, but he's not making contact with the ball. Uh, they actually think that he is going to beat the timetable. He was scheduled to be back by the All-Star break in July. Um, the Phillies think he's going to be back sooner than that. That's good news if you're the Phillies. And here's what's going to happen with Bryce Harper. Right? He had Tommy John surgery. So when he comes back, he's going to be a designated hitter. I mean, this is where, you know, if you're the Phillies, you're thrilled that there's a universal DH now because you've got a place for Bryce Harper. Um, And he will uh, be the DH. And I would suspect, I will be surprised if he plays the outfield in 2023. It's possible. But I will be surprised if he does. Um, you know, if you remember when uh, uh, Shohei Otani got hurt and he hurt his arm, they're no longer letting him play the outfield at all. But that's because he also could pitch. Bryce Harper uh, is getting paid far too much money to just be a designated hitter. So they need him in the outfield. But I would not be shocked if he doesn't play there this year. Uh, they're also worried about a little bit about Reese Hoskins. Uh, he had a... a procedure done on his knee in December Uh, he is still dealing with some soreness um, but uh, he is hoping that uh, he is ready to go for opening day and finally Justin Dunn of the Cincinnati Reds uh, his right shoulder soreness uh, returned last week they are shutting him down from throwing in camp Um, so he has a uh, a strain in his rotator cuff the same one that was injured in 2021 and 2022 and you know, uh, I hate to say it, but that's one of those cases when you have something like that and it's your third time, and not to be fl- flipping about it, but uh, it's almost like three strikes and you're out and you wonder if Dunn's going to be able to resume his career uh, or not. As far as action on the field yesterday, the Red Sox uh, beat the Marlins 7-2. to Corey Kluber got the start for Boston, pitched two scoreless innings. That was great. Uh, Kristen Ka- uh, Tristan Cassis looked great, two for three. Struck out his first time up, but he had a, a home run, a single, three runs batted in. A home run was a bomb. Um, and then, uh, look, the talk now for Boston is, because Bobby Dahlbeck is also playing well, right? And Jaron Duran is playing well. And I understand it's early. But now there's talk in Boston, and they're wondering if perhaps they might be able to spin a trade for Jaron Duran, although if I'm the Red Sox, I'm not sure I want to do that. The Red Sox have a little bit of flexibility now in that they signed 
Rymel Tapia, of course, who has uh, played for the Toronto Blue Jays last year and killed the Red Sox. So uh, he is uh, a guy that can play center field. You know, they got Adam Duvall out there, who's never been a full-time center fielder, but they're counting on him doing that. So, you know, and so who's going to be the fourth outfielder? Well, they signed Rob Refsnyder to kind of do that. They brought him back. Uh, he can, because Refsnyder can also play the infield a little bit. But so you wonder, uh, because a guy like Duran, he's not an infielder. He's going to play the outfield, and that's it. You know, and if they can spin him, in a decent deal to bring back some pitching or something, that may happen. If Bobby Dahlbeck continues to hit, do you keep him around? Dahlbeck played third base yesterday. Uh, the problem is, again, you have Justin Turner there, who's going to be your primary DH, but Justin Turner can also play third base, can also play first base, the same as Bobby Dahlbeck. The Red Sox actually are in a position where with some of these other players that they sign in the offseason – because of the disappointing performance of both Duran and Dahlbeck, what do you do if they have a great spring? Do you hang on to them and send them down to AAA, or do you sell high and hope that, hey, I'll spin them now because history tells me that they might look great in the spring, and then they get off to slow starts. And maybe if we can sell early in the season or in spring training, we can get more for them than we would late in the year. It's a tough. There's no question. That's a. It's a tough um, thing that Heim Bloom and the Red Sox organization is going to have to navigate. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about Heim Bloom. Well, not really about Heim Bloom, but Matt Barnes sat down with Pete Abraham of the Boston Globe yesterday and uh, had a couple of things to say. Didn't reference Heim Bloom directly, but you know that's who he was talking about. We'll bring that up when we come back. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 47 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call here on a Wednesday morning. So as I mentioned, uh, Pete Abraham sat down with Matt Barnes, the former Red Sox closer slash relief pitcher. Uh, Yesterday, he, of course, now a member of the Miami Marlins. Now, Barnes did not appear in the game yesterday. Matter of fact, he didn't even stay for the game. Uh, He said he didn't want to uh, uh, go over and uh, hang out with everybody. He said he was going to save that for June when they go up to Fenway. Uh, but he had some things to say, and it was he was trying to be diplomatic, I suppose, and it's probably a wise move on his part. Uh, you know, you never know in, in Major League Baseball, and you don't want to nuke any bridges on your way out of town. But he said, I'm not mad, and I don't have any animosity towards the Red Sox organization because that organization represents so much more than who's currently running it. <laughs> there is no question... Uh, he was talking about Heim Bloom. Uh, you know, he said that uh, he, he mentioned being grateful to the Red Sox ownership and a lot of the people in the front office like uh, you know, Brian O'Halloran and Eddie Romero. And um, But he never actually mentioned Heim Bloom by name. But he said, you know, he said, they told me that I was lucky last year, uh, late in the season, if you remember. You know, look, he had struggled, and it seemed like he had kind of pulled it together uh, when they kind of put him into more, uh, you know, high-pressure roles in August and September. And then he said, they told me I was lucky. Unfortunately, a lot of people in this game make decisions based on a spreadsheet. (laughs) Uh, By the way, he's right. 
You know, this is where the whole analytics thing drives me crazy, right? Because if we're going to look at, you just look at numbers, it, it it's going to tell you one thing. I always, and, and there are times, I suppose, where you can you can look at numbers and say, well, numbers don't lie. But there are also times when I, well, most of the time, I always like to use what they call the eye test. What are my eyes telling me? Are my eyes telling me he was lucky? Now, there is no doubt. There were a couple of outings that Matt Barnes had in September last year where, you know, he'd get two outs, and the next thing you know, there's two guys on and two guys out, and, you know, things have gotten a little bit dicey. But I also know that the eye test told me that Matt Barnes was throwing harder, he changed his pitch selection, and he he was looking more like the old Matt Barnes, and it gave me some hope that going into 2023, this guy was going to be able to be helpful. But Bloom and the eggheads at uh, Fenway decided that he was lucky, and so he referenced that. Yeah, I just love, I just love that people make decisions based on spreadsheet. Um, look, he's at the end of uh, uh, his contract. He's a free agent at the end of the season. He does have a uh, a club option for 2024. There's no way that the Marlins are going to pick that up. I mean, they don't have that kind of money. Uh, they are a small market team, and they don't like to spend money. But, you know, look, he said uh, he was – Barnes said again, you know, again, being diplomatic, he said, I was fortunate to play as long as I did in Boston. He was there 11 and a half years. And he said, but I've got some good years left. We have a lot of cl- talent in this clubhouse. We're here to win, yada, yada, yada. So, But I just love the fact that uh, – he, he said, I like the Red Sox except for the people that are running the club now. <laughs> um, as far as uh, other Red Sox news, uh, Yoshida leaves the camp Wednesday – uh, today he heads out to Japan for his World Baseball Classic team. This was funny. Yesterday, Alex Cora met with him and told him, "Look, hey, when you get it there, tell the folks there I'd like you to be the uh, you know play left field in one game and be the DH in the other." And uh, Yoshida turned to Alex Cora and shook his head and had to remind him that the DH for Japan uh, is Shohei Otani, so he's not going to be DHing. For, for Team Japan in the World Baseball Classic. That's just not going to happen. Speaking of Shohei Otani, he pitched yesterday against the Oakland Athletics, uh, his uh, only tune-up that he's going to have in the Cactus League before heading out to Japan himself. Two and a third scoreless innings against the Oakland Athletics, which, you know, that's I, I tell you what, we probably have some listeners that could throw two and a third innings against the uh, Oakland Athletics. Uh, but he hit 98 miles an hour. So he, he was looking just fine. Thank you very much. But he uh, heads out to Japan today um, as well. Um, James Paxton is going to start Friday for the Red Sox against the Twins. Look, this is a guy that has only thrown 21 innings over the last three seasons. He didn't throw any last year. This is a guy, when you look at it, he's kind of on that Chris Sale trajectory in terms of a uh, number of innings pitched over the last few years. And he st- he exercised his option to stay in Boston for next to no money for a guy with his resume just because he said he felt comfortable there. He gets on the mound on Friday. If I'm telling you, you know, this is why I give the Red Sox a chance this year. If And they're saying that nobody's talking about the elbow or the arm at all. They're just talking baseball. They said he feels like he's where he's supposed to be. Alex Cora said he's a baseball player now. And I'm telling you, if he is healthy, 
if Chris Sale can avoid bike accidents and get and and you know taking line drives off his hand, those two guys alone give me hope. And then you have Corey Kluber, and Corey Kluber's not the fireballer that he used to be, but Corey Kluber can eat innings. And Corey Kluber's a guy that can go out there and give you a you know a, a good six innings, seven innings, you know, give you an ERA in the upper threes. Give you a chance to win every game, not walk the ballpark. You look at that, you know, and then you throw in Nick Pavetta and whoever else is going to be the fifth starter, whether it's Bayo or or whether it's Whitlock, whoever it is. I'm telling you, this Red Sox team can make some noise. I really believe that. Uh, one other quick baseball note. This was funny. Yesterday, uh, in a spring training game between the Orioles and the Pirates. The game was over. The Pirates had a 7-4 lead. The Pirates were the home team. So at the end of the top of the ninth inning, the game should be over. But Brendan Hyde wanted a non-roster uh, pitcher to get some work in against live, live hitters. He was scheduled uh, to work. So in the eighth inning, he asked uh, the Pirates manager, Derek Shelton, uh, if he would mind playing that extra half inning, even though the Pirates were ahead, if if he would mind playing it, giving his guys a chance to hit and giving Brandon Hyde's pitcher a chance to get in there and get some uh, work against live hitters. And so he said, fine. Well, here's the problem. Well, actually, I guess it wasn't a problem, but with that half inning over and the Pirates ahead, the umpires left because they're not obligated to stay because the game is technically over. So they played another half inning, and the home plate umpire – was the Baltimore Orioles catcher, Maverick Hanley. <laughs> so he was calling balls and strike. It's actually fairly common uh, for that to happen, by the way, um, uh, in, uh, in inter-squad games and stuff. The catchers will very often uh, uh, call pitches. So uh, he did that, and uh, it was just kind of funny. So he was the, uh, the home plate umpire uh, for the last, the last half inning. And, you know, as, as Brendan Hyde said, look, you know, I need my guys to, to get as much work as they can. And uh, considering the fact that his uh, club isn't spending any money this year and they're trying to recreate the magic they had last year, uh, they're going to need every inning they can get in spring training. Uh, some college basketball news. Uh, number six Marquette won its first Big East title by uh, beating Butler last night, 72-56. Uh, Marquette 24-6 overall, 16-3 in the Big East. How about this, though? Marquette was picked to finish ninth in the preseason coaches poll. Ninth. The last time Marquette won a regular season conference crown, by the way, was all the way back in 2003, 20 years ago, when they won the Conference USA title. Unbelievable. So 24-6, and 16-3 in conference play for a team that was picked uh, to finish ninth by uh, conference coaches. you got to love that. A couple of upsets last night. Uh, number 18, or excuse me, number 15, Indiana, got blown out by Iowa last night. Uh, by a final of 90 to 68, Chris Murray with 26 points, and uh, Tony Perkins uh, had a big game as well. Perkins 23 points, 10 rebounds, and a career high eight assists. Uh, as Iowa tries to put itself in a better position uh, in the uh, Big Ten tournament, and uh, number 18 San Diego State lost to Boise State, 66 to 60, and the Milwaukee Bucks last night in the NBA. Won their 15th straight game. Giannis last night, 33 points, 15 rebounds. 15 straight wins. They beat the Brooklyn Nets 118-104. to They now have the best record 
in the NBA ahead of the Boston Celtics and look like uh, unless something funky happens, we are headed for another Celtics-Bucks Eastern Conference uh, uh, championship this year. That should be a lot of fun. That's going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. We'll leave you a little music from Thomas Rhett this morning, country again. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country.